Okay, good evening everyone. Um, my name's Abby Hutty. I work for Airbus Defence and Space down in Stevenage and I've been working on ExoMars now for about eight years. Um, I've actually just moved across onto a new project, the Sample Fetch Rover, but maybe you'll have to come next year to hear that talk. So, uh, ExoMars, we want to put a rover onto Mars. This is our little buddy project mascot, Brenda, has come along this evening. Um, okay, so that's fine, but why are we interested in Mars? Well, mankind has been looking at Mars for a very long time. These sketches here were drawn by Percival Lowell, who was an American uh, astronomer, and he was captivated by the idea of Mars and what was there, mostly through reading um, one of his peers' notebooks. So Schiaparelli was an Italian astronomer, and he wrote about these features that he could see on the surface of the planet Mars, and he described them in his native Italian as canali. Now, canali in Italian, um, canali, I can't do an Italian accent, I'm not even going to try, um, basically means a gully. It could be natural or it could be man-made. So it doesn't necessarily mean canal in the British sense of um, the English. But that's how Percival Lowell interpreted it. And he also could see these canals on the surface of Mars, and he actually made it his life's work to map the canal structures that he could see um, on Mars, but also on some other um, bodies in our um, solar system. So Venus as well, he saw these canals on. Unfortunately, we've uh, latterly discovered that what he was looking at was actually a magnification of the back of his own eyeballs um, <laughs> displayed on the lens of the telescope in front of him. So he did make it his life's work to map the back of his own eyeballs. Um, <laughs> however, that idea of canals on Mars perpetuated in kind of popular culture and ever since then, people have thought about life on Mars and thought about whether ancient civilizations were trying to carry water down from the icy poles that we could see to the arid desert that's around the equator. So we've sent a lot of missions to Mars. Um, there's actually some more recent ones since these. I don't intend you to be able to read the names here, but suffice to, suffice to say there's a lot of missions that have gone to Mars. Um, the different colours of the lines indicate the different countries that those missions have originated from. Um, and then whether it's a flyby or whether it's a lander is indicated by the, uh, the little symbols on the ends of the lines. The explosion marks at the end of the lines, that's not a good thing. Those missions didn't make it. So you can see that we've not got a brilliant history of success in our missions to Mars. It's actually about a 50-50 success rate, although obviously there's a lot more failures at the beginning. These, this is back in the 1960s, moving through to the present day, where we actually have a lot more successes um, mixed in. So if we look at some of those missions, Mariner 4 was the first to actually give us photographs of the planet's surface. It took 24 black and white images as it did a flyby um, on its journey through the solar system. Um, and from that, we could see a dusty kind of desert cratered surface without, unfortunately, any canals. So that disappointed a few people. We then landed on the surface for the first time with Viking 1 and 2 uh, back in 1976 and more than a decade later. And Viking sent back images from the surfaces, uh, surface, photograph um, images, showing also a kind of dry desert landscape. And people began to lose hope in there being life on Mars. Uh, definitely civilised life in the way that we'd um, imagined it from the uh, kind of folklore around Martian canals that had sprung up. We've had meteorites from Mars land on Earth. Um, some of them have interesting things in them. You might even have seen, I think it was only last week, um, they found a protein analogous to a mushroom protein um, in a meteorite that had landed that may or may not have come from Mars. And again, that brings up the conversation of is there life elsewhere um, in our solar system and especially on Mars. But some of the more recent missions have actually made us revisit this science and revisit whether actually it is so impossible for life to exist there. 
Methane is one of the findings that we're particularly interested in. So methane, we know um, from the conditions on Mars, shouldn't survive on Mars because the UV radiation would break it down into its constituent components. Um, so it should only last around two to 800 years on the surface before being broken down. Yet we see methane not only on the surface, but also sort of blooming seasonally. So you see these local areas where effectively clouds of methane um, come up from the surface in the summer months on Mars. Now that's interesting because on Earth, methane naturally only occurs from two major sources. One is volcanism, where the intense pressures and temperatures that you get inside a volcano can produce enough energy to make methane. And the other is from organic processes, bacteria breaking down organic molecules. And that is why, from a, a life perspective, methane is a particularly interesting uh, thing to have found. The fact that it's also seasonally released is something that we find quite interesting, because if it was coming from an organic source, this could indicate that in the summer months that organic process has more energy to, to flourish and operate, and then in the winter months um, maybe goes into more of a dormant phase. We also know that there's a lot of water on Mars. So this is an image from ESA's uh, Mars Express, which actually launched in 2003. Um, it's still operating today. And you can see the dark blue areas um, are indicators of subsurface hydrogen in the water analogous state, or as we like to call it, water. Um, so you can see that there's a lot of water at the poles, but there's also quite a good distribution of water other places just around the equator and things like that. And subsequent missions, actually Curiosity, the rover, was able to detect water. Um, and when it took a sample from the surface, it found that up to 2% by weight of the soil that it was collecting was water. So that's interesting as well, um, because a lot of people thought that because water can't exist on Mars um, in a liquid state, that it wouldn't be there at all because it would have sublimated and been lost. So blue is high concentration of water. Red is dry. Um, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. What was I saying? Anyone? Anyone was listening at all? Uh, so yeah, Curiosity found 2% by weight of water in the surface, um, in the soil of the surface. So we know that actually there is quite a lot distributed across the surface of the planet um, and therefore if it was something like a, a bacterium that we were looking to be able to survive um, maybe it would be getting enough um, liquid if it was dependent on liquid water um, for it to be able to continue to exist on Mars. So we could be looking at a life form that's not only existed in the past but maybe isn't extinct, maybe still lives on to this day. So that's what ExoMars is. It's a mission, part of a, a broader spectrum of missions planned by the European Space Agency, but it so far is the only one in this uh, Aurora program. And its objective is to search for life outside of Earth. So the primary focus of this mission is looking for life, either past or present, uh, on the surface of Mars. And Mars is a particular interest for this uh, search because it's not too hot and it's not too cold. It's in what we call the Goldilocks zone with regards to the sun. So it gets enough energy to have um, life surviving, but it's not so hot that we think that life wouldn't be able to survive on the surface because it would be baked off. Now, ExoMars is part of a broader mission, the program Aurora, but also ExoMars itself is a broader mission. So we have our rover, which is due to launch this year. But actually, in 2016, uh, we launched another part of the mission, which was this one. It's called the TGO, the Trace Gas Orbiter. And as part of that mission, there was a demonstrator lander module called Schiaparelli. Yes, that astronomer who saw the Canali in the first place, um, which was to land on the surface. So this mission is already there. The lander has already landed on the surface harder than we'd hoped. Um, so 
hasn't sent back much science, unfortunately. Um, but the trace gas orbiter is still um, doing its operational science in orbit. So as it sounds, the trace gas orbiter is looking for trace gases um, in the atmosphere of Mars, and that's orbiting at the moment. But as soon as ExoMars reaches the planet, it actually changes its mission to become effectively a communications relay platform for the rover on the planet's surface. This is a list of the countries um, that are involved in the mission. So it's a primarily European and Russian joint endeavour, uh, but the European Space Agency um, comprises, well, more than these countries, but these are the, the primary um, contributors in terms of instruments and things like that. We have contributions from all around the world, um, so it's not just Europe, but also Canada, the United States. Um, NASA is putting an instrument on board um, and places as far afield as Israel. So a really international effort to get this rover to Mars and to look for life when we get there. So what's difficult about a Mars rover? Why um, is it such a challenge? It's basically a car, right? Um, well, Mars is quite tricky. Mars is very, very cold, primarily. And um, that's one of the big challenges that doesn't sound like it should be hard, but actually is really very, very hard um, to engineer solutions for. So down um, at the poles at night, in winter, it can get down to minus 130 degrees centigrade at night. It's pretty cold. Um, and then even at the, the equator in the summer, it rarely gets hotter than about 5 or 10 degrees centigrade. So the temperature is cold, but also you have a very big day-to-night fluctuation. So um, from any given point on Earth, day-to-night here, for example, it's probably going to be, what, 12 degrees during the day, and it might get down to 2 at night. That's a 10-degree um, switch day-to-night. Um, on Mars, it's regularly over 100 degrees in any given place that you're fluctuating day-to-night. And when you've got materials and things... Um, that your rover is built of, bolted to each other or glued to each other and things like that, they all expand and contract as those temperatures get hot and cold, but at different rates. So one thing will be expanding a lot, one thing next to it that's glued to it won't be expanding very much at all, and they're effectively just tearing themselves apart as they go over that day-to-night temperature range. So we have to be very careful with our material selection for things like our printed circuit boards, for our electronics, and the actual structure, the body that the rover is made of. All of those kind of things have to um, really pay attention to the coefficient of thermal expansion, we call it, um, to make sure that they're not just going to tear themselves apart over the um, temperature range. There's a lot of radiation on Mars. It basically has no active magnetic field, which protects us here on Earth, um, from the deep space radiation environment. Um, there's also very little atmosphere. So here on Earth, that does quite a good job of protecting us as well. Um, on Mars, there's only about 1% uh, by density of the um, atmosphere that we have here on Earth. So very little to shield you from that cosmic radiation. Then one of our big challenges as well is that we're looking for life on Mars. So if we're looking for life on Mars, the last thing we want to do is to take Earth life with us, contaminate our reading with Earth life, think that we've discovered life on Mars, and then actually find that we've discovered flu from Stevenage on Mars. So that um, actually drives quite a lot about how we build our rover, but also the fact that we are going to have to sterilise it at the end um, of the build, um, and that means that your materials and the components that you, that you select have to be chosen to be able to be sterilised. Um, and that means, in a lot of cases, that they have to be baked. So we actually do what we call dry heat microbial reduction. It's effectively just baking in a vacuum. Um, all of our components, it can be for about 72, 72 hours um, at 130 degrees centigrade. And that just blast anything that might have been alive on the surface to make sure that it's not alive anymore and it's probably been sucked off by the vacuum anyway. So to put a few of those things into context, this is the temperature on a standard day on Mars. Um, for a very complicated reason that I won't bore you with, we have to put Mars time in seconds. 
Um, mostly because Mars's day isn't the same length as an Earth day and it gets really confusing if you start talking about hours or things because is it an Earth hour or is it a Mars hour? Nobody knows. Anyway, um, it starts off at effectively their midnight when it's minus 115 degrees centigrade, drops down as the night deepens to, I guess that's about, I don't know, minus 124 degrees, and then the sun rises and it very steeply peaks to a positively balmy minus 5 degrees centigrade um, before dropping off again rapidly. Now, just for convenience, I've marked on here in the red dotted lines the upper and lower temperature operating extremes of standard commercial electronics. So you can see we've got quite a big issue here um, in terms of finding components that are going to survive this environment. Even military-grade survival equipment for the Antarctic is only ever really designed for about minus 45 degrees centigrade, whereas we've got to be able to drive around and do all of our science operations down to about minus 90 degrees centigrade to be able to get any kind of um, duration out of the day that we can be doing science for. The dust on Mars, I mean, dust doesn't sound too terrible, but dust storms on Mars can be quite spectacular. So this um, is a series of images from Hubble Space Telescope in 2001. Taken in June, you can clearly see Mars's polar ice caps, um, which are mostly CO2, but also some water ice. You can see some of the major geological features, some impact craters, mountain ranges, things like that. And then September, this happens. The entire planet is engulfed in a cloud of dust. Now, this is a big problem um, if you're driving around because you can't see where you're going because there's a dust storm, there's a cloud of dust in front of you. But also, our rovers tend to be solar-powered, so you're not getting the power to your solar arrays to be able to get the energy in to survive as well. So, actually, this is a thing that kills a lot of Mars rovers um, and recently killed Opportunity. You may have seen that in the news um, NASA's longest-serving Mars rover had existed on Mars doing its science merrily for 14 years, and then a dust storm like this came along. Sorry, I'm going to have to... Um, a dust storm came along, and basically what everyone suspects is that um, it couldn't get enough charge into its batteries to heat itself um, for the duration of the dust storm, and therefore it would have frozen and wouldn't be able to wake up when the dust storm ended. This is Spirit, Opportunity's twin, um, taking a selfie back before they were cool, um, to show what the dust storm does to the surface. So this, um, they both survived um, a smaller dust storm um, quite soon after they were launched, and they were both instructed to take images like this to show what the damage was. And what you can see is that you've got a lot of dust that's just stuck onto the surface of the solar arrays. Now, the wind is not particularly strong, although it's the similar wind speeds that you get in a storm here on Earth because your atmosphere is so light, so thin. If you imagine just the number of particles that are hitting you, even if they're coming at the same speed, there's not enough to actually um, have much force. So if you imagine a rhino running towards you at 40 miles an hour, you're going to feel it. But if a kitten does the same thing, um, it would probably be a much more pleasant experience. Um, it's the same kind of thing that you're imagining with the atmosphere and how, much, um, how many particles there are that can actually hit you. So the dust will be blown onto the solar rays. It will also be blown off of the solar rays. But actually what we find is the strength of the wind is not as strong as the static cling that you get. So actually the dust becomes stuck to the solar rays just by static charge, by attraction of um, static force. And no matter how hard you then blow, it won't blow back off again because it's stuck statically. So the only real thing that we can do to avoid this is to put anti-static coatings on our solar arrays um, and then oversize them a little bit so that if this, for example, cuts out 10% of the light that's hitting the solar cells, you oversize your solar arrays by 10% to just have that capacity, even when the dust is stuck to it, to still be able to get enough energy into your um, 
rover. Just another interesting point. Um, the Mars year is about two Earth years. Um, the dust season is very nearly half of that. So chances are you're going to hit some kind of dust storm during your life there. Our mission duration, because we're engineers and we love round numbers, is 218 Martian days. Obviously, why wouldn't it be? Um, so you can see that if we landed at the wrong time in that year, um, we could live our entire life in the dust storm season and just have to endure that. So to uh, kind of illustrate that, it's not actually the damage that the wind and the storms are going to do to you physically that's the problem. If you've watched The Martian, I'm sorry, you've been lied to. Um, it's not going to blow the map over. Um, Mark Watney is safe, but they did need peril to make the story work, so I can forgive them that. But that's rubbish. Um, the map would never have blown over. Um, it just would have got a bit grubby, and uh, the dust might have got into places that you'd rather it didn't get into. Planetary protection. So one of the ways that we keep our rover from contaminating Mars is by selecting materials that aren't organic in the first place. So we're not allowed rubber tyres because rubber comes from trees, it's organic. Um, various different plastics and oils and paints and things like that are organic as well, so we're not allowed to use any of those. But the other is then when you build it, you have to build it in a very clean way. So this is before the clean room was commissioned when um, the builders has only just left and you've, you've met builders and they're not known for being um, sterile creatures. So after the builders have completed your Mars bio clean room, you then have to do a very um, in-depth three-month um, commissioning phase to sterilise it. So we, we went in with our prototype rover at the time just to kind of demonstrate how it would look. Um, but this is how you look when you're in your full bio-containment gear, um, and this is how the rover looks the day that before it ships out of sight. So you can see that the amount of clothing that you have to wear to protect the rover, it's not protecting me. Um, I'm not in any danger from the materials or anything that's present on the rover. It's just to protect the rover from any contaminants um, from my person. So um, oils on your skin, um, particles of bacteria that you would breathe out, um, bits of flakes of skin, bits of hair, stuff like that, making sure that none of that comes in contact with the rover. Got to land on the surface of Mars. It's a well-known thing that doesn't always go to plan. So you enter ballistically, um, travelling at 20,000 kilometres an hour. And at that point, there's not much atmosphere on Mars, but there's enough atmosphere that that still heats you up quite significantly. So it, you just have a heat shield and you hide behind it and you hope you don't burn up. Um, but that eventually slows you down enough that you move from hypersonic to supersonic and you can jettison a very small, very robust parachute. That will bring you down from supersonic to subsonic, at which point you can um, deploy a much larger parachute, which will slow you down more. And then the trickiest bit of all you have to basically, at the same instant, um, well, you get rid of your heat shield, but then at the same instant, you've got to fire your retro rockets. Um, so rockets in the direction of travel, they effectively um, bring you to a hover, but also jettison the parachute with its back cover, um, because if you fired your rockets and you still had your parachutes out, you could get twisted up and become... Um, a big fiery ball of parachute, which isn't ideal. So you have to do that timing quite accurately. And then your retro rockets bring you down to a hover above the planet's surface. It's a little bit like you might have seen Elon Musk lands his rockets on a kind of oil platform out at sea. Now, unfortunately, um, Elon Musk, when he was building those rockets and testing them for the first time, he had a lot of what he describes as RUDs, uh, rapid, unplanned disassemblies. Um, and that's because turbulence is very difficult to predict. Even when you're on a very nice, pristine, flat oil barge out at sea, um, the air currents that you get 
from your retro rockets if one of them's not firing quite as strongly as the other or um, dust billows one way, billows the other way. You really can't predict it, and it's very difficult to have a control system that is accurate enough to sense those disturbances and correct for them in real time. Um, now, our, our Mars rover has to descend completely autonomously because we're so far away from Mars that any signals that we were sending to control it remotely um, wouldn't get there until after it had hit the surface. And we can't take that kind of a risk, um, especially because we're not landing on a perfectly flat, pristine area. We don't know what terrain we're going to be landing on. There could be jagged rocks, there could be cliffs, um, and that turbulence just can't be predicted for. So it's a bit more of an agricultural approach to um, the engineering of landing. We get to about a metre and a half, maybe two metres, and we turn off the retro rockets, just drop the rest of the way to the floor. There are crushable structures, we call them, basically shock absorbers in the legs of the landing platform. Um, so it's not exactly a crash landing, but we're going to call it a bump landing, maybe. Um, and that's about minus 100 degrees centigrade that that happens. So from a materials perspective, everything is quite brittle down at those temperatures as well. So that's quite a, a difficult um, loading case. So all of those challenges require quite a big team. We don't get the team together very often, so you don't really get to see um, photos like this unless we have special occasions like Christmas Jumper Day. Um, so apologies for the uh, festive nature of the photo when it's not a festive occasion. I particularly like Mike's suit. I think he looks spectacular. Um, but just gives you an idea, we have um, about 160 people who are working on ExoMars at the peak. Um, there's a much smaller team now that the, the rover has effectively been built and delivered. Um, but all of these people have con contributed at Airbus just in Stevenage um, around the world contributing instruments, working on the descent module, the cruise module, the rocket um, that will actually launch it into space in the first place. We estimate about 1,000 people have worked on putting this mission together. So this is what our rover looks like. You can also see my uh, beautiful 3D printed model down here. Um, so you've got a mast with cameras at the top. Uh, so that you can see over craters and see where you're going. Um, also, so that geologists recognise the kind of pictures that you're sending back. Um, we did a little test early on in the rover's life cycle where we sent a rover into a quarry in Sandy, Bedfordshire, um, and took pictures from the top of the rover's body. Uh, we mounted the cameras there and sent them back to geologists and said what kind of a feature, ge geologically speaking, do you think this might be? And they said, I don't know what planet you've taken that on, but I've never seen anything like it before in my life. <laughs> uh, turns out geologists are really unused to looking at pictures taken from kind of thigh level. Um, they're much more used to taking pictures at eye height, um, and therefore the mast helps them to feel a little bit more at home in what they're looking at. Uh, so you've got your solar arrays. They actually fold um, to be more compact for the launch and landing so they're not flapping around all over the place. So the, the back ones fold onto the front ones, they actually fold underneath, um, and then the stack folds on top. They fold that way so that the cells are always facing the sun no matter where they are. We learnt from Beagle that you make sure that solar cells always point up and that antennas, which are these two things, are never obscured by solar arrays. Um, so even if the solar arrays don't deploy um, as fast or as you expected them to, uh, you've always got solar cells to get power and you've always got um, communication with your device down on the planet's surface. We've got six wheels, like a lot of Mars rovers have. Um, we did suggest a lot of other things to ESA when we were coming up with our design for a Mars mission. We had tracks, we had sort of spider-style legs and things like this. Um, and they said, mm, we like the one that looks like a Mars rover. Um, <laughs> there is a reason for that, um, and that's redundancy. So we could actually lose up to three of our wheels. They could stop working, as long as they're not all on the same side. And you could still drive around a little bit. You could still drag yourself about a bit. 
Whereas if you had legs and one of them stopped working, you'd just be dragging it through the sand the whole time. You wouldn't be able to climb over rocks or anything like that with your um, lost leg. And if you had tracks, if you lose one track, you're completely dead. You can't go anywhere. So actually, wheels gives you a lot more options if you do have failures. One of the big things that we've got um, that's important is the drill. I'll come to that a bit more later. Um, and we've also, uh, the animation stopped going round, but we've also got ground-penetrating radar <laughs> um, on the back of our rover, which is rather fancy as well. Oh, it started again. Well, you can see it on the next slide anyway. Um, so the reason that our ground-penetrating radar are interesting is basically they're like eyes to see under the ground. So with radar, we can detect things like the density of the soil underneath us. Um, so you can actually tell what kind of rocks are underneath you and if there's any gaps or fissures in those layers of rocks, maybe um, where there's potentially water ice in a gap between two layers of rock, that might be an ideal location for life to still be existing if it was still on the surface, uh, where it's protected from the radiation environment at the surface but still has a source of water. The drill is the way that we find life. So we know that if there was life literally sat on the surface of Mars, it would be dead because the solar um, radiation that hits it, the UV radiation, would have destroyed it. So if you leave um, contaminated things, bacteria-covered things out in the sun, the bacteria die. Um, top tip for coronavirus. Um, but also we know that it doesn't take a lot to block that UV radiation. So just putting a T-shirt on stops you from getting a sunburn. So a millimetre of fabric stops that UV radiation. So, okay, it's not in the top one millimetre. But actually, if you go into the full metre, the next metre, um, you find a, a chemical in the soil of Mars um, called a perchlorate. Um, and the problem with perchlorates is that if they get any energy, if they get hot um, in the sun or that kind of thing, they break down into peroxides. Now, anyone that's ever had an unnatural hair colour will know that peroxide is bleach. And bleach, domestos, kills 99.9% .9 of all known bacteria, um, which is not ideal when you're looking for bacteria. So we actually need to get down below the level where these perchlorates are in the soil as well. Um, one of the theories that we believe is that perchlorates are actually caused by the action of dust particles rubbing over each other, soil particles um, rubbing over each other during dust storms, and it's part of that static charge um, process that creates them in the first place. So we think that if you get down to the solid bedrock where that soil has never had that effect of um, the static uh, rub, then you'll get below the perchlorates. Then you've got one last factor, ionising radiation. So this comes from deep space or our sun, things like solar storms, um, but also um, cosmic radiation events give a deep ionising radiation that penetrates a long way into the soil. But um, radiation is shielded by an exponential function. So actually, 1.5 metres of soil gives you the same shielding. I worked it out once as 99.99998% of the entire planet's shielding. So if it can't survive at two metres below the surface, chances are it can't survive on Mars, because even at the centre of the planet, you'd have enough radiation there to kill it. So our drill can drill two metres below the surface. We're looking for any kind of biomarkers. Um, it could be um, something as exciting as a bacterium. It could be something as boring as um, a collection of chiral molecules um, or an isotope that helps give us evidence that that thing isn't um, of geological origin, it's of biological origin. We've picked our landing site. We are landing at Oxyoplenum, and that's for a number of reasons. Firstly, 
there's, this is an elevation map of Mars. So here, red means high and blue means low. So we think that there used to be a ocean that covered the whole of the north uh, pole of Mars. And then you've got higher ground in the south, and particularly high ground all around this area here. And actually, we're landing by parachutes, and we don't have enough atmosphere to slow us down between when we enter the atmosphere and when we hit the ground if we land at the higher elevation. So we need to aim for this more turquoisey colour where you've got enough time to slow down before you hit the ground. Then our rover is solar-powered, so we've got to land in a band around the equator where we're going to get enough power into our solar cells. So between 5 degrees south and 25 degrees north is this band where we get enough power. So that basically gives you this area here or this area over here. Now, over here, you have some very deep drifts, dunes of sand. Uh, you can see that it's quite smooth. Uh, there aren't that many impact craters over here, and that's because there's so much loose sand and soil. And as I mentioned, you want to drill into the, the hard bedrock to be looking for life. Whereas over in this area here, you can see some very clear ge geological features that look interesting, like impact craters, things that look like potential gullies and riverbeds and um, maybe lakes and deltas and things like that. So you can see that there's a cluster of missions of aimed for this area. And that's because, geologically speaking, it's very interesting, as well as meeting all of our operational needs for the rover. Also, just to reassure you, um, if you were fans of the Martian, this is exactly where Mark Watney goes. Uh, so he lands here with his Ares. He goes and finds Pathfinder, which is this one here, goes back to the Ares, and then goes down to Schiaparelli Crater. Schiaparelli, oh, there's a name that I've never heard linked with Mars before. Uh, we'd think we could find somebody else to name things after, but maybe, maybe in the future. Till then, everything's called Schiaparelli. Okay. So, we have to get there. One of the big developments that we've done in Stevenage is our autonomous navigation. So, our rover will be able to drive itself around. We look at the maps that we've got from our orbiters that have given us um, the 3D images of the surface of Mars, and we decide where's scientifically interesting within our rover's range to drive to. Now, we can give it a location, basically a, a coordinate to drive to that's up to two days' drive away. It doesn't even have to be within the rover's field of vision, and the rover can drive itself there. And it does that in this way. So you've got the cameras that were at the top of the mast, and they're basically 3D cameras. There's two of them. Like, we humans have two eyes so that you can see how far away things are. You get depth perception. Um, it has these two cameras so that it has depth perception. So... Um, it can look around, it takes three images, it combines those images and works out what the disparity is between them. So you can see this cluster of rocks is also in this image. Um, this rock here is also in this image. And as it combines them and it can tell um, how far away things are, it can actually use that to build up an elevation map of what's in front of it. So then you can work out what looks dangerous and where looks safe to drive. So you can put blobs of stay-out zone around things that look like they're too big for the rover to drive over or slopes that are too steep for the rover to drive up. And then you can categorise everything else into risk, um, from low risk to high risk, and then work out what the optimal risk versus reward route is so that you don't put your rover in too much risk, but you get to your intended location without driving too far. So it works a little bit like this. This is in our Mars yard in Stevenage. So you start at this location here. Black means you can't see there yet. Blue means this is the edge of where I've been able to see. So there could be an obstacle just outside. Um, so I don't want to go too close to this. White means there's an obstacle that's too dangerous for me to climb. And then you've got kind of bands around that, again, of there could be an edge that I don't want to drive up against. And then everything else gets categorised into red for quite high risk, yellow for lower risk. So you start driving. You plan a two-metre path. You drive that two-metre path. 
and then you stop again and you take another three pictures and you look around and you plan your next two meters of path and then you drive that path and you keep going and you keep going until in this case you get to the corner of the room so you can see that there's a um, 90 degree angle where the two walls come into um, in this room here and you can actually do that right the way across the planet's surface so the capabilities of our rover the, the maximum obstacles that we can climb um, the maximum slopes that we can climb have all been determined so that for any given terrain that we're expected to be able to find on Mars, we could travel across it using this method. While we're going, we also have this method to check that we're driving where we expect to be driving. So we're going to be the first rover that actually has um, this feedback loop while we're driving. Nothing before has ever done this. So Previously, Mars rovers have planned a path, normally one metre um, rather than two, and then they drive it. And if they've been stuck in deep sand or they've got a wheel stuck against a rock and it's been turning but they haven't been travelling where they expected to, at the end of that one metre drive, they might look around and go, well, actually, I've spun around completely and I'm not where I expected to be. I haven't travelled a metre. Or I've slid down this slope and I've travelled five metres. Um, and then it has to work out what to do to correct for that. But in the meantime, it could have got into a very perilous situation. Our rover will actually have this feedback loop that means that it can look at what's in front of it. It's basically a video. Um, it plots a 1,000 points. So all of these points here, um, it will look at maybe this rock here and say, OK, I can um, put a point on this corner of the rock or this was obviously in a field in the world so there are trees there are less trees on Mars but um, mountains whatever you can imagine the same kind of thing the color red means that it's close blue means that it's far far away and actually triangulating back all of these points as you drive through them you can get under one centimeter accuracy on where you wanted to be versus where you are even in a random looking terrain like this and then, like I mentioned, you're not allowed to have uh, rubber tyres. So this is the way that we get around that. We have fully flexible metal wafer wheels. Um, so you can actually see it slightly flattened at the ground where you've got the weight of the rover pushing on it. So it gets the same grip traction driving over rocks by conforming to the shape of the rocks that it's driving over. Um, and then when you're in deep sand and you want a slightly different performance, you have these things, so these little ridges across the wheel. We call them grousers, and they're like a little shovel that helps you to drag yourself across the surface of deep sand. And between these two features, uh, we can travel on basically any terrain on the surface of Mars. We also have a couple of tricks up our sleeve. So if we were to get stuck in particularly deep sand, we can use this method, which is called wheel walking, so actually the wheels aren't really rotating. We're using a shoulder joint to roll the wheel forward like legs. So the wheels are always staying still with respect to the sand that's directly underneath them. They're not spinning in the same way that a car would spin its wheels if it was in deep sand and maybe get stuck um, driving across a beach. And in this way, we can get through really deep sand dunes. So if you put all of those things together, you can drive a bit like this. So you drive your two metres, you stop, you look around, take your three pictures. This is actually speeded up quite a lot. Rovers drive really slowly. Um, so you drive your two metres, stop again, take the next set of images, carry on driving. There is life on Mars. It's my colleague Richard. Um, and then you continue doing this. Um, Richard gets bored, goes for lunch, lighting conditions change, um, comes back again. Rovers do drive really slowly. Uh, it carries on driving, does its two metres, um, checks again. Richard is actually just moving the power cable here. This um, prototype rover obviously doesn't have solar panels because it's got a roof on this building, so they wouldn't do it a lot of good. So it has to be powered by cable, which means that Richard has to move the cable to make sure that it doesn't drive over its own cable and cut off its energy supply. Uh, while it's driving. Um, interestingly, though, for everyone else, not for Richard, um, he's got to hide from the rover while he moves the cable because if it could see him, um, it would completely screw up all of its autonomous navigation because it would go, oh, there's an obstacle. Um, 
so he has to run along behind it, hiding from it all the time that it's driving, which we all find intensely interesting, and he does not. Um, so this is just to show you with our, um, that system that I showed you that tracks the 1,000 points and corrects the course. This is um, an illustration of what would happen on the left without it. So if you're on a slope and you're doing this point-turn manoeuvre, it effectively corkscrews down the hill, whereas this one here, um, hopefully it's going to start again. You can see if you look at each of the wheels, for example, this one, it's slipping, but it's correcting itself constantly to drive back up the hill as much as it's slipping down, and so it, it stays in the same location um, where it's hoping to be, even though it's um, sliding down the slope all of the time. And again, this is the same thing if you're driving across a bank or slope like this. The system will automatically correct as you go over a rock and fall off a rock and you're sliding in sand and all that kind of thing um, to make sure that your path remains straight and you don't <coughs> slide into unnecessary danger while you're executing your path. So that's the, our design for ExoMars. That's our rover. Um, I'm happy to take any questions. Um, also, if anyone's interested, um, if, if you liked the cartoons that were in the uh, presentation as I went along, there's a book of them here. I believe there's 46 um, cartoons. Uh, those books are £10 each. Thank you very much for listening. And any questions? Hi, thank you very much. Very, very um, illuminating. Um, I didn't think of this until the very last slide, but what happens when it falls over? Because it nearly did <laughs> the last slide. Uh, it doesn't fall over is basically the idea. So um, the whole point of the autonomous navigation is that you don't ever go into anything that would be risky enough that you could fall over in the first place. There are certain things that we could do. So we've got those wheel-walking motors that allow you to move the shoulder joint of your rover. You could, if you'd fallen over on one side, put all of those legs down or all of the uphill legs down and, and do a manoeuvre to try and right yourself again. The solar array hinge mechanisms remain active, so if it was just a very small force that you needed to push yourself off the surface, you could maybe use a solar array to nudge you, but the idea is that you'd never do that in the first place. That's great, Abby. Thank you for a wonderful talk. Two questions. Can you give some indication of the level of computing power on the rover, CPU, GPU? And secondly, once the rover has left planet Earth, do you have any opportunity to update firmware software if there is an issue en route? Okay. Uh, not my area, so I, I'm not very up on the numbers. Um, but I know that the process that we're using um, is 72 MIPS slow. It's basically 1980s technology and that's because it's specifically radiation hardened processes and those tend to be a lot slower and are basically a long way behind the curve of um, processing power up to kind of modern day commercial stuff. Um, so yeah, it's pretty slow processes that we're working with. Um, um I was just wondering, because one of those slides you showed um, where the rover could go and where it couldn't, mm -hmm. what happened, um, is there any way the rover stops itself going over that boundary, or could it go over that boundary? Um, so, yeah, the idea is that it will notice that it's too dangerous for it to go there, and it will pick a path that goes around it. And if it was to find an area where it had to effectively completely retrace its steps to be able to get a safe route, it would try doing that. Um, but if it really started to struggle, it would basically phone home and be like, okay, guys, you've told me to get to this place, but there's too many obstacles in the way. What do you want me to do? And then we'd take an assessment on whether we wanted to relax what we call too dangerous or not, um, or whether we actually think that there is, from the maps that we've got, um, a better route if you just go a little bit further, and we might choose to do that to keep the rover safe. 
three things. Um, firstly, how long does it take if you want to, if you're saying we want you to go from point A to point B, how long does it take for that information to be relayed to the Mars rover? Okay, uh, that's a very good question. So it depends where it is in the orbit. So if Mars and Earth are both next to each other in their orbits, it can be as little as four minutes. Um, but if, for example, Earth is on the other side of the Sun to Mars, um, okay, nearly on the other side of the Sun to Mars, because if it's directly opposite, we can't send signals through the Sun. So we actually have a, a spell of time where we can't talk to it at all. Um, but if it's just a little bit off, they're about as far away as they can get. It can be up to 24 minutes for a signal to get from Earth to Mars. So how fast does it, in let's say a day, usually travel? Like, it, uh, will it go uh, kind of so faster than I will? So traveling autonomously, our top speed is about a centimeter a second, which is quite hard to kind of get your head around. Um, but we're expecting it to travel between 70 and 100 meters in a day. But it's not driving for the whole 24 hours. It's got only a, a window when it's warm enough during the day for it to travel. But that's about the amount of distance we expect it to cover during the course of the day. Very slow. Um, if that's a sandstorm, Surely the terrain would change, and how would um, that navigation 1,000 points um, take into account the um, path? Of the so it's, it's really just a relative thing. So it's from the start of the drive to the end of the drive. So if you've parked up during the sandstorm, you just start again from fresh um, when you start driving again. So um, it's, it's only telling you this is where I am, and this is where I want to go to, and then it's telling you how accurately you followed that path. So it doesn't really matter what, where you were before. It kind of reinitializes every time you start your two-meter drive segment again. There's one down here. There's one here. I think there's one just behind you as well. If all your electronics won't work down I don't know if everyone could hear. Uh, so the question was, um, if normal electronics don't work at the low temperatures down on Mars, we have to design our own electronics. Um, and the answer to that basically is yes. Um, so obviously, electronics works in the same way. You still need diodes and resistors and things like that. Um, but the, the problem is really the materials that the, you're using um, for your printed circuit boards or whatever. So we actually have to print the circuit boards on special substrates that match the coefficient of thermal expansion of the metallic contacts that you're printing onto them better than a normal one would so that they don't tear themselves apart over those temperature ranges. You can still Um, you have, yeah, you have to have special kind of space-rated ones that have heritage of being used in space, but they are available, yeah. Yep. Thank you. Very interesting lecture. Could you tell us a little bit about the drilling mechanism and how the sampling will be done once you get down under the, the surface? Thank you. Okay, so that was actually uh, designed by our Italian counterparts, so I don't know the full details of the system, but I do know that... Um, the drill itself is titanium. Um, it's a bit like an Archimedean screw, so it's effectively just pushing the soil up its shaft dur during the drilling operation. Uh, you've also got a boresight camera, um, which is a very high um, magnification imager, so you can look for things like microfossils or things like that as you're drilling um, or changes in the shade of the um, the soil that you're drilling through, the rock that you're drilling through, to see if there's a particular area of interest that you would want to um, sample specifically within that column. So you don't just have to column, um, sample from two metres, it could be anywhere within that two metre column. Um, and then when that point, when that bit of soil gets up your Archimedean screw, it goes into your um, sample analysis area. So we've got what we call an analytical laboratory drawer, 
and it's got various different instruments that it will pass through spectrometers, um, the, the MoMA, the Mars Organic Molecule Analyzer, and various others, all of which will help to determine whether it's got any organic um, material inside it. Happy to keep going. There seem to be a bit of a swathe of questions over this side. Um, for when the solar panels get a lot of dust on them, can they not be, having not thought of putting some sort of a wiping mechanism on it, like a windscreen wiper sort of thing? We've done studies on that, yes. Um, we've also done studies of compressing air and blowing it off and various other methods. Um, the issue that you have is that the, the particles are very fine, um, so you'd have to wipe quite hard to get them off because there's a, a very small contact um, depth that you'd have to reach to be able to actually wipe it off. Um, the particles are very strongly adhered with the static. Um, again, so you'd have to wipe it quite hard to get it off. And the particles are very sharp um, because they're mostly um, wind eroded rather than water eroded. So you would be scratching your solar cells quite badly by doing that and actually um, scratched solar cells are just as poor in performance as dusty solar cells. So uh, it's been decided that it's, it's not worth it, basically. You just oversize your solar panels. Um, hello. Uh, about Brenda, if yep. Brenda was, uh, if, um, cur um, not Curiosity, if uh, ExoMars was based on Brenda, um, is ExoMars more advanced and does it use some of Brenda's technology to um, complete the mission? Uh, do you mean Brenda or uh, Brenda? The um, Brenda is the mascot. I thought I thought they based because Brenda was a prototype, wasn't it? Sorry, say again. Didn't they use Brenda? It was an actual rover. They didn't send it to Mars, though. Uh, so the rovers that have gone to Mars so far, there was the first one was called Pathfinder, and um, that was a very little one. Um, the, the actual rover was Sojourner. Um, then there was Spirit and Opportunity that were kind of twin rovers. And then Curiosity is the most recent one uh, that NASA sent. Uh, yes, but uh, Brenda wasn't actually sent to Mars. I mean, wasn't ExoMars? Uh, so we, we've got a, a, a group of prototypes that we yes. use in Stevenage. Um, so those ones are Bridget, Bruno and Brian. Um, <laughs> There's a bit of a, you know, running theme. Um, they're all breadboards. So electronic engineers described their working prototypes as breadboards. And uh, we had a, this, the first breadboard, and we were going to display it to the press for the first time. And we had it in the notes that BB will come out from behind the curtain. BB will present whatever it was to, you know, whoever it was. Um, and they said, ah, oh, who's coming out from behind the curtain? Is it Bridget Bardot? Um, and so Bridget was born, and never since then we've had these BB names. Anyway, um, your question. Uh, so Bridget was the first prototype. Um, she isn't really used anymore for ExoMars testing because our designers developed so much that she, she doesn't really look like our final rover would look, and she doesn't work in quite the same way. Um, then we have Bruno and Brian, who were effectively twins, um, so they were the first ones that we demonstrated the locomotion um, and the autonomous navigation on. Um, and Brian actually went out to Italy where they tested the drill on board the prototype, so making sure that when they drill, um, the rover doesn't um, get any vibrations through it that damage it or uh, doesn't sort of spin around the drill because the drill is so much more powerful than the rover is heavy or you know anything stupid like that. Um, and then we've got another one, um, Brian, which is the one that you saw in most of those videos, which is the one that's most like the rover that will go to Mars. Um, so it's the most advanced in terms of the autonomous navigation stuff, stuff that's on board. The drive motors and things like that are very representative of the flight ones. But if you remember, I think I can go back actually. Yep, so here you can see that it's basically the wheels um, are just connected together on this um, metal skeleton. And the reason for that is that in Stevenage, we've got Mars gravity. And on Mars, they've got Mars gravity. And that's only about a third. It's 0.38 of the gravity that we have here on Earth. 
So if we want the rover to behave the same when it's driving across sandy slopes and sinking in sand and things like that, um, in the same way that will on, it will on Mars, it can only be 0.38 of the mass that the final flight rover will be. So whilst it might have all the same functionality as the flight rover, it's not the same as the flight rover because the flight rover is heavier. Um, the way that we keep it down to that 0.38 of the mass is that it doesn't actually have any of the equipment on board. So it doesn't have the batteries on board, it doesn't have the drill on board, it doesn't have the um, ALD, the analysis laboratory on board, and that means that we can keep it within that mass. So um, all of these are working prototypes and have helped us to design um, the flight rover, but none of them are quite the same as the flight rover. I'm afraid that's all we have time in terms of questions, but we do have uh, something new to the Science Festival this year. So we have an Ask the Scientists board out the front in the reception area. It's a board with some post-it notes next to it. So if you do have any questions that you'd like to get answered, do write them on the notes, stick them to the board, and we'll post the answers on our social media. Thank you again very much for coming along, and we'll hope to see you again soon.